So in our parable series, we're now in week eight of ten. So including today, there's three more weeks of parables to go, two more after this. And I've really enjoyed going through these parables with you. Uh, I hope that um, you find them both challenging as you've looked at them and looked at how to follow Jesus as we look at his parables and we try to grasp his intentions and apply them to our lives. And it seems like every single week I stand up here and say, now I told you last week was the most difficult and this week is more difficult. Maybe this one is misinterpreted a lot. And today's, then cue today's remark, this parable is known as one of the more confusing parables. Um, it's called the parable of the shrewd manager. And we always, like, we always like to look at the background to see what's going on so we don't just drop into scripture, look at the passage and try to figure out what's going on just by reading that one scripture alone. We want to look a little larger, see what's going on beforehand so we know why Jesus was saying what he's saying. We don't want to just look at it and say, you know, like Jesus says, well, oh yeah, well, and then says something. I was like, why did he say, oh yeah, this is what I'm saying then. Why did he say that? Because somebody else provoked a thought or, or something in him and we want to know what that was. So when we look at this situation, we can't guarantee that what Jesus is saying is connected to all of it. It kind of looks like it is, but we're not sure if, if necessarily Matthew or uh, Luke was just kind of pushing them together. But it looks like it, it was. And we can see that just beforehand, he was talking to his disciples and to Pharisees. The Pharisees were nearby as well. And we can see that in the, if you look in the chapters just before, it says that the Pharisees see him and he was eating with tax collectors and sinners. Uh, and the way they group it together is because tax collectors were Jewish people who were collecting tax on behalf of Rome. So anybody else who was Jewish would kind of look at those people who were tax collectors and they'd look at them with disdain. They'd be like, I can't believe you would actually do that. Because Rome was like occupying them at the time. And so... You know, there they were helping their occupiers tax them. And so they didn't like them very much. And because it was a religious country, all their political rules were based off of their faith. It, there was no real separation of church and state for them. Their faith was their, their state. And so all their rules connect together. And so the Pharisees who would be helping, you know, enforce those rules and teach those rules would look at anybody who wasn't being the faith rules as sinners because you're not obeying the faith system you're you're automatically a sinner so tax collectors and sinners were not people to hang around because they weren't doing what every good Israeli should do and that's who Jesus was hanging around with he'd go to their houses for meals he'd hang out with them he'd teach them he'd spend time with them and the Pharisees didn't like that because they thought Pharisees should hang out with Pharisees rabbis should hang out with rabbis and they considered what Jesus was doing as something that a Pharisee would do, a rabbi would do. And his followers often called him rabbi, teacher. Why don't you tell us what's going on? And so they considered him trying to be at their level, and that means he should do what they're doing and hang out with them, not with uh, sinners and tax collectors. So that's, what, that's kind of the setting that's going in. And from that, because they were grumbling and saying that, you can't hang out with these people. They, shouldn't, they don't deserve your time. Jesus then has a list of parables that he starts leading him through. One called the lost sheep, where uh, the farmer goes and looks for, the shepherd goes and looks for a lost sheep. One about a lost coin, where when he turns your house up, upside down looking for a lost 
coin. And then one of the most famous ones, parable of the lost son or the prodigal son. And so he tells those because the Pharisees were like, who are you hanging out with? Why are you hanging out with them? And he's like, because they're lost. It's the whole reason I came is for the lost. So we know they were listening, and then he kind of switches tones of how he's talking about going after the lost to seemingly talking to who was following him. And we see this, and we, we wonder, because Jesus is now, he's talking about what was most valuable to him, right? I'm seeking a lost coin. I'm seeking the lost sheep. I'm seeking the son who went away and left me, and I want him back so badly. That's what Jesus' priority was. And then he switches to then looking at how the disciples should live. And that should be important to us then as he transitioned it out of that. And this is what today's parable is. And in it, we'll find a rich man, right? There's this, what he'll, the story will refer to as the master. And so he was very, very wealthy. So much so that other very wealthy people would have contracts with him and his contracts held what they were doing. And so he was extremely wealthy and in charge of other, uh, or had other wealthy people uh, doing business with him. And then we'll also find a steward in there, or sometimes he'll switch between a steward, a manager, or a servant. But all of them mean he was an employee of this rich man, this master. He was in his employment, and the, re- the way this employment worked, that this steward slash servant slash manager he had complete authority over the business for his master. Whenever the steward or manager showed up, it was as if the master was showing up. Whatever decision the steward made on behalf of his master was as if the master was there saying it himself. His signature counted as his master's signature. That's the way his role was. He was hired. He wasn't a slave. He was hired, and this was his role. All right, so that just to give you a picture of what's going on. So now, if you want to follow along, I encourage you to jump into your Bible. We'll have it on the screens as well, but we're reading from Luke chapter 16, and we'll go through a number of verses, starting with verse 1, and I'm, I'm reading from the New International Version today. So I encourage you, bring your Bibles right in the margins, mark it up, underline things, highlight things, so that as we're going through this, you write it right in your Bible. And that way, when you're coming back later and you're going through your Bible, you'll have all those things to reference. So it's, it can often be a great resource for you later on when you're going through and, and God wants to share something to you. So let's, let's dive into his word here. Jesus told his disciples, again with the caveat that the Pharisees can also hear, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. And so he called him and he asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer, a.k.a. he's being fired. You're fired. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called each, uh, each one of his master's debtors, and he asked first, How much do you owe my master? 900 gallons, or about 3,000 liters of olive oil. That's a substantial amount of olive oil. Uh, He replied, and the manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. Then he asked a second, and how much do you owe? 
a thousand bushels or about 30 tons of wheat. And he replied, uh, he replied, and he told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. You can see why it might be a little uh, confusing there. And you read through this far and it sounds like Jesus is saying this master is talking to a steward and he says, hey, good job. You kind of weaseled your way there. And you're like, that sounds like a pretty awkward parable. What is Jesus telling us here? Is he telling us that dishonesty is good? That conning somebody and, and, and trying to figure out your future that way is a good thing? I think if we keep reading in the text, we'll see that it's probably a little bit more painful than it is perplexing for us. So I want to keep reading as Jesus goes into the explanation of this. So then after the parable ends, Jesus says this. He says, For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Let's pray. God, we just thank you again for your word. And as we dive through this parable and what it means for us today, I pray that God, you again give us eyes to see and ears to hear. God, may our hearts be open to what you have for us, both individually and collectively, what it means to follow you and how this parable applies to our lives. God, I pray that we just let go of any defensiveness. And again, we'd come in humble submission to your word and what it says for us. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So this parable is about seeing one's future and preparing for it. It's about using wisdom and cunning to put ourselves in the best position possible. Think about it. You see this manager and steward he knows he's about to be fired. He knows this is it. The moment of reckoning has come. Apparently, it's, it's been bad for him. He hasn't been managing his, his master's affairs well. And so when his master says, what have you been doing? Show me the books. He doesn't even try to defend himself. He just knows it's over. So we see that right here. But he knows he's not strong enough to beg because he's been doing uh, the office job. He's been living the life of a manager and, you know, his muscles aren't all that strong. So he can't dig, uh, which probably means like going to uh, getting down the, the most menial job you can get in an agrarian culture, right, where you're literally digging. You're trying to clear paths, rocks out of ways for, for um, farm fields, for anything. That's the lowest job you can possibly get. And he knows he's too proud to beg. That after being the manager of this master, this very wealthy person, and basically walking around with his word 
as, you know, what he says is gold, you know, he's, he's a business maker here. He's too proud to go from there down to begging, but he's got nothing else. So while he's still manager, while he still has, you know, whether it's a signet ring to, to put on there to say, you know, this is, this is the new deal and, and to sign off, well, he still has that power. He hasn't brought the books to his master yet. He hasn't, you know, fully been fired. He's coming, but while he's still in that place, he sets himself up for the future. And he does it through favors, like we read. He cuts the bill in half for a couple of people who are doing business with his master. And that's a significant amount of money that he's cut in half. These people weren't, uh, weren't, they weren't poor. They weren't poor people that were, you know, doing business with his master. They were well-off people. To owe 3,000 liters of, of olive oil, that's a lot of olive oil. And they weren't like dashing it over every little salad that you can think of like we do today and pouring it in pans and letting it get all nice and hot. Olive oil would be used for a lot of things, but it would also be something that would be of value. That's a big bill that he just cut in half. 30 tons of wheat, that's a lot of wheat. So these people are not poor, all right? So he's taking smart businessmen and he's saying, let me do you a deal here. Let me cut you a deal. But in their culture, what that meant was they were now obligated to return that favor. When somebody does you a favor like that, you are then obligated to then return the favor. Now, obviously, they could have refused the favor and then not had to owe it, but they, they did what he said, took that favor because of the money savings. And what it did then was it, it secu- secured him, I would assume, at least, at least five years before he had to worry about it again. That... What they would owe him because of the deals he made would secure his living without worry for at least five years. That's a pretty good deal. That gives you five years to figure out how you're going to keep going. That's a pretty good deal. He's very cunning in how he did that. And the master doesn't praise him because he was wasteful. He doesn't look at the books finally and says, wow, good job. You really did a bad job of managing my business. He doesn't do that. He doesn't, he doesn't praise him because he was a thief. Basically, he robbed his master of half the profits of those two things. He doesn't praise him for that. He praises him. He says, good job, because he was able to secure something for himself. He was shrewd in how he went about doing business. The manager had taken advantage of his opportunity, carefully working the situation to his own advantage, since the debtors were then obligated to him. His future was secure. Now, in the Bible, we often see a reference contrasting children of light and the children of this world. Cunningly, the manager had set up his boss to look benevolent. His boss now just said, you know what? I'll cut your prices in half, what you owe me in half. He made his boss look great with those other debtors while also setting himself up in the future. In today's culture, we may have heard that master play some, say something like this, well played, well played. You played both sides. You played everybody in that situation to get what you wanted. So where's the sting for us in that? I think the sting falls in the point that Jesus was driving for both us as disciples and the Pharisees listening. 
Because in Luke 16, 8, 9, he says, For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. He says, instead of using your wisdom and gifts and worldly wealth to earn an eternal reward in heaven, we seem as followers of Jesus, children of the light, to live our lives now. And when it comes to being a steward of all that God has entrusted to us, it seems that though all the above, our, our gifts, our skill sets, our, our money, when it comes to God's kingdom, the trickle kind of, you know, it, it goes from a flow to a trickle to almost cut off to a drip in being able to fund and do what God wants us to do for his eternal kingdom. We give tentatively, we share modestly, and we tithe at a lower percentage. But here's the thing. Children of light are gifted for others to walk in light. Children of light have resources so that others can have a seat at the table with God. Children of light have wisdom not to be a stumbling block to others so that they too can see Jesus. Children of light set goals and dreams and they spend money to steward for a life beyond this one. Not for our enjoyment here, but for eternity. Of the nearly 40 parables that Jesus spoke, one third of them deal with money in some way and the hold that money can have on us. How to use money for kingdom purposes. See, money plays a prominent role in Jesus' teaching because it played a prominent role in the society that he lived in. Much the same as today. It asks if we're going to realize the truth of our situation. See, this parable speaks to the urgency and the focus that we must have. The manager urgently worked to change the circumstances for after he would be fired, for after the termination of his current situation. His focus consumed him with setting up himself up with money, with favors that would keep him going. See, the urgency of this parable would play out into the early church when we read in Acts where they would, they would share everything that they had. Everything that was needed was there to provide for the care of each other and the needs of the poor. They lived with this urgency and a desire to see their wealth secure them a future that would not rust or fade or be taken away. They lived with that urgency because they anticipated the soon return of Christ. And if he didn't return, they knew that they wanted to do anything and everything possible to secure their future with him. Today, people spend money. They spend much of their time thinking about money, how to acquire it, how to spend it, how to save it, how to invest it, how to borrow it, how to keep track of it, and sometimes how to give it away. What should the focus of followers of Jesus be when it comes to money, when it comes to wealth? See, the challenge is that we live in two worlds, and if we're not careful, we allow the concerns of this world to dominate our time and our resources rather than using them for God's kingdom. We compare the children of this world, and we look at what they have, and we think, well, that's how I measure what I'm supposed to have. 
And we want to have the same or do the same. And we look at their goals and ideals and their future that they've charted out for themselves and go, well, that's just what we do. That's what, that's what a future for us looks like. Our dreams vary little from theirs. And if you wonder whether or not you feel like a children of light or a children of the world, stop right there and assess your dreams. What does your preferred future look like? What dominates your time thinking about what do I, what's my next 40 years, 50 years look like? And if it's filled with the same thing that anybody else in this world may be filled with, we wonder where our tensions lie in how we follow Jesus. Our dreams can vary little from theirs. See, that issue for Jesus is this master-manager relationship, this owner-steward relationship. Could it be that it isn't, that we don't know how to manage or steward because when it comes to what we want, there are no limits to what we will do. Our determination gets us there. Therefore, it would probably be more dishonest of ourselves if we say that we can't return a tithe or we can't spend time or prayer, we can't share our faith, or we can't make a big sacrifice. It isn't that we can't often. It's that we won't because our dreams lie somewhere else. They've captivated our heart, and that's where our resources are heading. Jesus says to us that if we can't be trusted with little, and in reality, what little means for him is the wealth of this world. The wealth of this world. If we can't be trusted with little, then we can't be trusted with kingdom wealth. Think of it. Gold is so worthless in heaven that they pave the roads with it. One of the most precious things, one of the most expensive things that we can, we can put on as jewelry or carry around or use to, to accumulate wealth is used as pavement in the next, in eternity. What are our, worthly, our worldly wealth? What is it? What good is it? It's of little value in the eyes of God. If we can't be trusted with little, and we can't be trusted with kingdom wealth. He says if we can't manage his property, and the last time I checked, the earth is his and all that is in it is his. If we can't be trusted to manage his property well, then what property could we be given? Money seems to be a particularly strong God in our culture. We are enticed to follow because it offers us a fake version of what God offers. It offers us peace, financial peace. It offers us security. It offers us happiness and rest. But it's fleeting. God is forever, but money is fleeting. God changes lives. Money just changes hands. God gives equal value to every human life, Money takes equality from human life. For us today, it's either that God bought us by his sacrifice and will use us to change the world, or money will buy us off, use us up, and sell us off for change. I think most likely, 
after we've gotten this far in the parable and the teaching, the most confusing part may be the idea that we can use wealth to earn or ensure eternal dwellings. Sounds an awful light like we can just buy our way into heaven. That we can just spend a little money and get our way into heaven. Because he says, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. One scholar says it like this, though. The subjects of works slash righteousness may suggest itself in this parable, but only because we have distorted the subjects of faith and obedience. In Jesus' teaching, obedience to the will of the Father determines eternal destiny and earns approval. Hear that. In Jesus' teaching, obedience to the will of the Father determines eternal destiny and earns approval. The idea of faith without such obedience is nonsense. And Scripture will back this up. We look at James 1.22. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. James 2.14-17. What, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? So pros a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands, says 1 John 2, 3 and 6. Whoever says, I know him, but does not know what he commands is a liar or does not do what he commands, is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. In Luke 12, 32 to 34, he said, Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to the poor, provide purses for yourself that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. And we wouldn't sell out the kingdom for a little bit of money in our bank accounts. Today's parable primary audience was the disciples. And overhearing was the Pharisees. And boy, did they ever grumble at this one. They grumbled at it. And if you read the next few verses in the parable that we read, he calls them out and he says, you think you know what you're doing, but it's going to come back at you. The Lord turned these three evangelistic parables, the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son or the prodigal son. He turns from them in which he called to those who rejected him to repentance, those who were lost to salvation. To one, aimed primarily at believers, the parable of the shrewd manager. He moves then from a sense of forgiveness to a sense of formation. Once you are forgiven in Christ, it is now time to be formed like Christ. We are all stewards. We are all serving either God or money 
And the stewards, the real question today is what kind of steward are you? Godly stewardship starts with a tithe, 10% of what you make before taxes to your local church. And then it stretches and grows to generosity to others. Sacrificial moments led by God, not others, to bigger needs. And to break it down locally for us, last year our giving in the church here was about 185000 And our expenses were about 217000 Some of that would included doing the concrete work out front and having to add the, um, the melting wires on the roof so it doesn't uh, damage anymore. And we had money in the bank to be able to handle some of those things. But what that means, though, is that we are barely breaking even with how we minister in today's culture. In fact, a number of expenses for us are covered by Life Center as a whole that don't even come out of our tithes and offerings. Next year, we'll project that it will spend at least $207,000 as is for ministry in Cornwall taking into account inflation and ministries ramping back up post-COVID. That doesn't include any big projects that property may need or anything like that, emergencies that come up. And we anticipate mobile mission growing. So to say it succinctly, our determination is to use worldly wealth to see as many people become friends of God as possible, to grow in God and be formed in God as possible. And the expectation is that we are all giving to that. The expectation is that you're all, I'm all, we're all going to care for each other at a sacrificial level. That collectively, it is our obedient response to Jesus, our master. And so again, we are all stewards. We're all serving either God or money. And as stewards, the real question again is, what kind of steward are we? Today, it causes us to pause and reflect on our spending habits, on where our treasure is, on where our dreams lie, and where our obedience is. Today, the question we ask ourselves is this, will you be honest enough to admit which one you're serving. As a personal point, I want to make sure you understand that standing up here to talk about this, not as a moment of pride, but as a moment of being vulnerable in front of you, I speak this making sure that Pastor Ingrid and I give our full 10% to the local church plus more. Currently, we sit at about 14% that we'll give to the local church, that we give to making sure that what we do here at Life Center works. And I don't share that to, to be out of pride. I share that to say I cannot share with you what I do not back up myself, that I'm not asking you to do anything that I'm not asking of myself because it's not me that's asking. It's God that's saying, who do you obey? Who do you follow? Totally unplanned was how Catherine spoke to just the need for focus and obedience. 
that God would call us to focus and obey. What is he calling us to do? Focus on on that and obey. Now, if you wish to further see what Jesus has to say about false riches and true riches, just read his story a few verses down between a rich and a poor man in verse 19 to 31. And when it comes to eternity, all the money in the world can't change one thing for ourselves nor for others. It's only Jesus that changes things. And if you wish to talk further about tithing, finances, your finances, the church's finances, how to reorder your finances in a godly way, Pastor Ingrid's right here. She'll take your... (laughs) Truthfully, we're here for you to walk through any of this. But as good stewards of all that is given us, I want you to remember this from Philippians 3, 20 to 21. Our citizenship is in heaven. It's not here. The wealth here that we have is not wealth of the kingdom. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Our citizenship is in heaven. And when we're with him, he will transform all things for his glory. So while we're here, let's do anything and everything we possibly can to make friends and to earn that eternal dwelling. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the riches that you have given us. And truly, we don't know how rich we really are. Because our culture and our world keeps telling us that more is needed. More is wanted. Happiness comes with more. But true joy comes in you and you alone. God, may we take a moment here just to reflect, pause, and ask ourselves where our treasure truly lies. What dreams do we hold in our minds for our futures? And how many of those dreams are filled with you, with your generosity, your mission for our money, your mission for our lives? our talents, our spiritual gifts. And as we humbly just lay those things before you in obedience, Jesus, may you direct us, not any human, but may you direct us in how we're supposed to live and what it looks like for us to be the body of Christ together, for what it looks like for us as Life Center to minister to each other and to our community. And may we do that with the most generous, joyful hearts we possibly can muster to see your kingdom come and to enter into it fully. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.